This podcast is proud to be part of the TalkSport Fan Network. TalkSport. Powered by fans. The TalkSport Fan Network is proudly supported by McDelivery, bringing you the food you love. McDelivery brings a top-tier lineup of food right to your door. No matter the results, you'll always be winning with McDelivery. Order now on the McDonald's app and you'll get rewards points delivered too. So that ordering today means some tasty rewards for tomorrow. Only via app at participating restaurants. 18 plus rewards registration required. Points only on menu items, delivery fee and terms apply. See mcdonalds.com. The TalkSport Fan Network is proudly teaming up with three for Mental Health Awareness Week this year. Beyond the pitch, beyond the results, we're here to connect fans, getting them to embrace the highs and lows of supporting your club because we're not just fans, we're a team. With two in three football fans having struggled with their mental health, we understand that life off the pitch can present its own challenges. That's why we're committed to ensuring you have the tools to stay connected with your friends and fellow supporters. Take a moment to connect with your mates. A simple text or an open conversation can make a world of difference. And if they don't respond right away, don't hesitate to follow up. Let's all take a moment to talk more than football. Hello and welcome to Total Saints Podcast, episode 24. My name is Ben Stanfield, I'm the host of TSP. As ever, we have a lot to get through on this week's episode, but we'll try our best to do it in a rapid but detailed and constructive but level-headed manner. Now on to my guests. Adam is away, but we managed to complete a couple of our own deadline day loan signings who will be joining us for this episode. First up is Glenn Delacour at League One minus 10. Glenn, second time lucky hopefully after last week's technology issues, but how are you keeping? Yeah, not bad. Um, yesterday, I thought it was a good idea to join in with my uh, under-14s team and uh, have a game of five-a-side. And today, I feel like I need a, a spine transplant. I'm just, I'm just in bits at the moment. But uh, other than that, I'm absolutely fine. Yeah, you're tr- tr- trying to sort of fulfill the midfield general role or something like that, was it? Or? No, I was a rush goalkeeper, which and even even that was too much energy for me. I think I was, I was sort of moving around in a sort of like five-yard square, but. Uh, no, I have to accept that uh, at 49 and about four stone overweight, the playing days are probably over. Fair enough, fair enough. No, that's fair enough. And and just, I know there's a lot of ups and downs with Saints at the moment, Glenn, but you promise not to swear, right? Absolutely. Good man. This is a family show after all. Excellent. Um, now, our second guest on this week's episode is a respected journalist from the Press Association who, amongst other things, follows and reports on Manchester United and England's senior football teams. The more important point, though, is that, like the rest of us, he's a long-suffering Saints fan as well. It's Simon Peach, at Simon Peach from Twitter. Simon, thanks so much for joining us. Before we talk about Saints, you just got back from a great trip to Australia, I believe. Yeah, I have. It's also good to know that I can't swear. That's good to get in nice and early. Um, yeah, just been in Australia for four or five weeks. Um, missus has been pestering me for years, so went there. Um, brilliant. Went everywhere. Obviously watched a lot of sport because you have to when you're out there. Yeah, it was wonderful. Nice to be back, though. Uh, it was a bit of a back down to earth with a bump when going to watch uh, May United Huddersfield yesterday. But, uh, yeah, there we are. No, good. And I, I know Adam often mentions it when he's uh, talking about sort of sports journalism and such. Like, but I, I guess it's hard to generally find a time to get away from everything, you know, when you need to recharge. Because I know you don't just cover football. You obviously cover athletics and other things for the press association. So I guess there's no real convenient time in the year to take a holiday. No, there's not. When uh, when I said to my boss, can I have four weeks off? He, he 
well, he swore. But I explained if I'm going to do the World Cup and Man United's preseason tour or whatever else, I'm not going to have a summer. So <laughs> when else do you want me to do it? And uh, it's quite nice out there. So I'm glad I went. Good stuff. And regarding Saints, obviously, as I said, more importantly, so you, you follow them a long time uh, like us. So I, I was going to just before we kicked off, get you to sort of talk about some of your, your favourite moments, your first game, you, you, some of the players you've seen that have stood out and sort of any, any memorable matches, Simon? Well, when you're saying about long-suffering Southampton fan like everyone else, I mean, I should have got the memo straight away. My first game was a certain match that has gone down in history. <laughs> uh, I was taken by my mum to go and watch Southampton versus Leeds. Classic. Um, I know where you're going with this. <laughs> uh, some, fe- some fella came off the bench and I asked my mum who it was and she didn't know. And turns out the uh, the manager, Graham Soonest, didn't know either. <laughs> Ali Dia, obviously. <laughs> World-renowned Ali Dia. Um, yeah, on and off in the same game, just and that set the tone really. Uh, that that's probably my favourite era of it, just because obviously you grow up with it. So my favourite players are Egg and Stat and people like that, and Tears obviously. But uh, yeah. yeah, so that that was it. Favourite matches probably FA Cup semi final uh, at, um, at Villa Park. It was caught on the TV towards the end, uh, getting looking rather anxious. Um, which back then was a big deal. You know what it's like. If you get caught on TV and everyone's sending photos of you, it's quite a big deal. Uh, Everton, when we beat them on the last day of the season with Pahars to stay out, that was a, a good one. I enjoyed, probably the most enjoyable goal was uh, the corner from Jason Dodd against Pompey, which uh, my season ticket at the time was right behind, so I had a really nice angle on it. And it's the only goal I've ever celebrated in my life for just laughing. I just <laughs> laughed. Yeah, yeah, and I know I, I saw you in the San Siro last year at, at, at Inter Games, so I know you you got to travel out to that one as well. Yeah, went to that. That was obviously fantastic. Went with a, a couple of mates. Went to Sparta Prague away as a fan last season as well. Uh, I probably went to more Europa League games last season than any other human in the world. Uh, <laughs> yeah, so I did all of Manchester United's away games, uh, two of Saints' away games, and all the United's. Well, the United home games I could get to as well. So I think I did about fifteen in the end. Uh, Fantastic. So, well, it was uh, it was a good run for them, wasn't it? So there we go. But uh, it's, it's a pleasure having you on with Glenn and myself. And um, the three of us are going to battle our way through the Brighton and West Brom games, chat about a questionable transfer window, look at Pellegrino's current position, and finally have a quick look ahead to the daunting visit of Liverpool and all those ex-Saints next weekend. As well as that, another passionate Saints fan, Tina Croucher, will tell us a bit about her work with the Saints Foundation and stadium tours at St Mary's. This is Total Saints Podcast, episode 24. Glenn, another lacklustre St Mary's performance this season, a rather questionable lineup with four centre midfielders and uh, Shane Long starting, whilst Lamina, Buffel, Carrillo and Gabbiadini all started on the bench. What, what did you make of all that? Um, it was garbage. Um, <laughs> I, I've, got used, I've got used to coming away from games depressed, but I'm, I'm now, I've, you know, for that one, I, I got to the game depressed because I saw the starting lineup when I was walking across the Itching Bridge and thought, what on earth is that? That You know you, you know what you're going to get with Brighton. You know you're going to get a massed defence, um, usually eight players, all lined up on the edge of their box. So the last player you want is Shane Long because he's only good at running and he needs space to do that. So picking him up front is a disaster to start with. Um, and then the, the, the three attacking midfielders, um, Ward-Prowse, uh, Davis and Tadic, that's three very similar paced players. There was nothing there, nothing in that starting lineup that suggested it was going to be any good, but 
as a fan, you always think you know better than the manager, obviously. And, and there's t- still this little thing in my head sort of saying that he obviously sees something on the training ground that's going to work. And so the game kicks off and you're, you're looking for, for something. And it was exactly as I predicted when I was on the Itching Bridge. It was just the first half was abysmal. Um, second half, um, the advantage with it being such a bad starting lineup is that he couldn't make it worse with his substitutions. Um, he bought on the subs, went 4-4-2, and it was better. Um, but I struggled to give him much credit for that because it was more or less an acknowledgement that he got the first half completely and utterly wrong. Um, we were better in the second half. Um, we got the goal, which was lucky. It was a mishit free kick and a, you know, a, a flick from Stevens, which could have gone anywhere, but fair play to him. It, it nestled in the bottom corner. What disturbed me most that was that until Brighton decided to settle for a point around the hour mark, um, they were the better side. You know, they played the better football. They had more attacking intent than we had. Um, and so, you know, getting a draw from that game, which, which was, in my opinion, one we had to win, um, was was just not good enough. And it it, it was another another nail in the, in the coffin for Pellegrino, as far as I was concerned. But there's been several last nails in the coffin, uh, going back to the Liverpool away game, Spurs away game, you know, all that stuff before Christmas. Simon, in terms of Saints' record at home this season, it's been fairly poor. Um, do, do you think that that could be the, the main factor in which league they end up playing in next season? Or do you think it's just one of a number of factors that are, are going to sort of leave everything in the balance the, the last few games of the season? Well, you don't see many sides doing well or staying up without a good home record. So, yeah, it's, it's vital. It is, it is strange because it's continued from Pearl's reign, hasn't it? Mm. Thankfully... <laughs> Now, I, I was living, I didn't watch the Brighton game, I was living vicariously through fans like yourself on uh, when trying to cover deadline day. So my house was basically full of me swearing, either about transfers or about <laughs> Southampton, because I had Soccer Saturday in the background, and they do that tease of going to the ground, uh, and it would always be bad. It's just such a str- strange thing. I don't, you go through the quality of a squad. I mean, I watched Huddersfield yesterday, and they are a terrible football team. They, they, yes, you look at the quality are. in their squad and you go, Saints haven't managed to beat them. Right. Saints haven't managed to beat Brighton. Mm. OK. I mean, the, these are sides who are... We're, on, on paper, we are so far superior to them. And individually, we are. But the problem mm. is, things haven't been going right. And I try and stay level-headed. But it's hard when you draw one all out into Brighton in a game you have to win yeah. and you don't perform. Yeah. Yeah, and some of the doomsday stuff on Twitter was laughable, but at the same time, it is hard not to feel like that when you can't beat Brighton at home. Yeah. when you need to beat Brighton at home, it's not like it's uh, September and you've lost what you, you've drawn one all with Brighton. And you go, oh, that's a bit annoying. It's a deadline day. The news have come out that Southampton aren't going to make any acquisitions. Yeah. Uh, you need to win. You've got a home game. You don't have that many home games, and admittedly, the form hasn't been great. But you need to start winning those matches. Mm. And there was no there just wasn't any coherence from what I could tell. That's the problem. There's been there's been no noticeable signs of improvement at home. Yeah. You know, we, we we might have we might have had the odd one or two games where we don't look terrible, but then a Leicester at home comes along, or a Brighton at home comes along, where it looks like, hang on, the, the guy seems to have forgotten everything he's learned in 30 years of being involved in football, mm. and we just don't seem to make any sort of improvement that is sustained yeah 
And I, I guess the other frustration, Glenn, that I, you know, I was thinking about is, as Simon mentioned there, I mean, these teams aren't great. So they come to St. Mary's, they park the bus, Burnley's and teams like that have done it as well. And we just, we, we try a plan A, whatever that is, it doesn't work. And then we don't seem to have a plan B, C, whatever. So quite often you can just tell the longer the game goes on, it's going to be a nil one or something like that because we just struggle to break them down. It's interesting you mentioned Burnley because they are, correct me if I'm wrong, they're eighth in the league. Um, that shows how, with our full, full respect to Burnley for being where they are, I'm not putting them down, but it shows how bad 8th to 20th in the Premier League is. Um, when, when, I, when I looked at it this, this, um, at the start of this season, um, I was sat there with my mate who's a Crystal Palace fan, and we both said, well, there's no way our teams will be involved down the bottom because there's so much rubbish in the league this year. And there is rubbish in the league this year, but to take your point, they all seem to be able to defend well enough to stop us scoring at home. Um, I'm, I'm really hoping that the, the new signing that we did actually make is going to make a difference. He, he, he might not score any goals himself, but just his, his presence on the pitch will hopefully bring the rest of the team forward and give us a focal point because we haven't had that for a season and a half now. Burnley is an interesting example, though, because they're seventh in the league and they've not won a game in the league in nine matches. They've not yeah. won in nine Premier League matches, yet they're still where they are. Admittedly, they'd had a good run, but that just shows how poor everyone is outside the yeah. top yeah. six. Yeah. The, uh, I mean, I couldn't believe it yesterday when I saw Saints have gone up to 14. <laughs> yeah, I know. Nosebleed territory, isn't it, now? Well, look at, look at Bournemouth. Bournemouth have won, a, I think they're undefeated in seven, and I think they've won three games in that time, but they've gone from 19th to 8th. Yeah. That's mad. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, but I guess that's been the one thing for me, you know, and I tweeted about it during the week, but that's kind of the one thing for me that was keeping me positive to a certain extent was yes. that yeah. obviously the league is so tight that it only needs Saints to get two or three results like Bournemouth have done and they can almost be safe by the looks of it. So it's not like you, you cut adrift and you've got to win three or four games just to get back in touch. Yeah, yeah but, the, but I guess the issue had been until, uh, obviously we'll touch on it later, but until yeah. yesterday, uh, until Saturday, we'd um, only won four all season. Yeah. So yeah. it's, it's easy to say, oh, we only need two or three wins, but we've only won four all season. And they've been against a Crystal Palace side, enjoying the worst start to a top-flight campaign of any team ever. Yeah. Uh, an Everton side who was managed by David Unsworth. <laughs> I mean, you, it's, it's, not, it's not like it's... Uh, it wasn't like, oh, we don't, it, oh, this season. I can't wait for it to end. Yeah, but you're right, Simon. I, I was actually thinking about that during the week, is that, you know, yes, we obviously play well against Everton, Crystal Palace away was a decent result. But even if you look at West Ham, it was a, in inverted commas, dodgy last-minute penalty. And then obviously yeah. a worldie from Buffel. So even the other two wins were hardly sort of, uh, you know, they could easily go on the other way, couldn't they? Yeah, yeah, very very much so. I mean, I think the, the problem is, is that, or one of the problems as I see it, is that the manager is inherently negative. You know, he wants, he wants to sit deep. Um, he doesn't want to commit loads of players to attack um, in, until yesterday, it appears. And the problem is, is that our defence is not good enough to to sit back and soak up pressure. It it just isn't. Um, we will always cough up goals, usually in the most amateurish way possible, with just a high ball into the box and not marking a player. It's too easy to score against us, so we have to at least have some sort of attacking threat. Um, you know, up until yesterday, we we haven't seen that. Um, so hopefully. He's, uh, he's learnt the lessons. And even next week against Liverpool, we, we actually try and cause them, their, them problems at their end of the pitch and not just rely on a bank of five, then a bank of four.
Yeah. Simon, as I've mentioned before, I, you know, I guess there's more than one reason why Saints find themselves in the predicament they do. But regarding Pellegrino, what, what was your thoughts on him in the summer being appointed and what have you made of his management of the team since he took over? Well, we're quite good at it now, getting used to new managers coming in. I try and give them the benefit of the doubt. Replacing Claude Puel, if, and I'm really happy he's doing well at Leicester, but he did need to go. He didn't have the respect of the dressing room as far as I could tell or understood. And he didn't have didn't have any love from the from the crowd. Uh, yeah, maybe that got a bit unfair at times, but it it did feel that the right time for him to go. And Pellegrino had a fairly good CV. I didn't think there was that many options out there to replace him really for us at the at the time. And obviously, Frank the Ball was another one Saints were looking mm. at, and I think we may have got away with one there. Um, <laughs> And I, I, was, I remember reading a piece by Sid Lowe, who's obviously a very well-respected uh, journalist in Spain for The Guardian, and his it was basically, this guy is the best thing since sliced bread, which obviously increased my excitement. But he, Yeah, I read that just, as well. It, it's, <laughs> just, it's just not... He didn't, I don't know what it is, but he hasn't got it mm. as far as... Well, certainly so far. He seemed. I, I met him, I uh, played against him, bizarrely, at this... Uh, it was like a journalist versus Saints star uh, in November, I think it was. And I spoke to him and I was really taken aback by like how honest and nice the guy was. But is he too nice? And the other guy called Mauricio that managed us, he didn't have a particularly good plan B when he was at us. And this fella certainly doesn't so, so far. But as Pochettino's shown, that can change as you get used to the Premier League more. Yeah. And uh, Glenn, I mean, obviously we move on to West Brom. We rock up there with still the record of every other... 91 football league teams having won a game since we last tasted victory in the league, <laughs> which I didn't actually know, which was Jeez. pretty depressing. But, uh, no, I mean, obviously we get the win at Hawthorns. I think none of us really expected it. Certainly I didn't. Um, but a massive three points, Pellegrino aside, in terms of Saints and their season. Yeah, huge. I mean, if we'd lost, I think we would have gone bottom, yep. wouldn't we? Yep. Yeah, because Swansea got a point and West Brom would have gone above us. So it just just from the, the, the mentality moving forward... Um, it's huge, and as we've touched on, we've gone up to 14th, and, and that's fantastic. I hope no one is thinking everything is, is fine now and it's all going to be great. We have to follow it up in, uh, in subsequent games. Exactly. But, you know, going 1-0 down again to, in the most pathetic way imaginable with a free header, um, for, the, you know, for the next half an hour, we were brilliant. Mm. Um, just after half-time, we're 3-1 up, um, concede another header, um, have chances to win it, but it falls to Shane Long, unfortunately. Um, and, um, you know, we got the win, and, and that is huge. Um, I didn't go to the game. I've spoken to people who have said it was a, you know, a really, really good performance, probably our best of the season. So, you know, that's encouraging. But, you know, we played on the front foot for virtually the whole of that game. And that, um, I, I, a bit of a throwback to old times as I listened to um, the Adam Blackmore, Dave Merrington commentary. Mm. For um, for most of the game, and uh, yeah, they 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 are trying to be correct in that they're not trying to slaughter the manager too much. But you you can tell there's a, there's a definite undercurrent there of why haven't we played on the front foot all season? Mm. Because that's where our strengths are, really. You know why 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 have we sat back all the time? So so uh, yeah, one swallow does not make a summer. I mean, yeah. we 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 played West Brom. Uh, West Brom had a lot of injuries and Pardew made some baffling um, selections, leaving Rodriguez out when he had five goals and seven. Yeah. 
I was like really, really pleased when he did it. Picking Daniel Sturridge, who I think is totally overhyped and overrated. Um, flat track bully boy. You know, it's it's all very well playing for the uh, playing for the top six and you know scoring one from lots of chances because they have so much of the ball. I don't think he'll do anything at West Brom. So I was delighted he was playing. They they had to play Rondon because of our weakness in the air at the back. So. But the midfield, Barry and Jakob, I thought, well, well, we'll win that. And as it turns out, Lamina has a game where he looks like the best midfielder on the planet. I was surprised about J-Rob because I thought that would, if I was manager, I would have thought this is a player that's going to have a point to prove against Southampton. So I would have been probably the first name Absolutely. on the team sheet. And, and obviously there was a great tribute to Cyril Regis before the game, Glenn. I'm, I'm picking yeah. on you here probably because you're the oldest member of our pod today. But uh, um, a lot. <laughs> <laughs> um, obviously Saints fans played their part with the uh, tribute and the, the scarves a bit like we did at Watford. But I was just going to ask because I, I, I must have seen Cyril Regis at some point of the Dow, but I can't honestly remember him. And that's not meant to sound disrespectful, but I just wondered if you had any memories of him really. Uh, I do actually. I, when he um, hit his stride at West Brom, I think it was about 1979. So I was only 10 then. So I didn't really appreciate all the, you know, a lot of the tributes have been about the what trailblazer he was with regards to black players in British football and stuff like that. I um, I didn't really appreciate all that um, as a as a 10 year old. What I remember was what a good player he was. He 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 just had so much pace and power. Um, and I, I remember him scoring goals in that iconic green and yellow West Brom kit when they came to the Dell and he made us look stupid at times. It's It's been quite nice because in the highlights packages they put on BBC website and things like that, a couple of the goals against Saints have been included. And, you know, I, I remember those goals. I remember how good he was. I remember him playing for uh, for England as well. And that was long overdue. That took longer than it should have done to get him in the England side. Mm. I don't know how many caps he got. It wasn't very many, about five, I think. But uh, when he moved to Coventry City and um, won the FA Cup with them, he, he'd lost a bit of his pace, but he turned into this very intelligent centre-forward who brought everybody else into play. So he wouldn't score as many goals, but he, he'd set up goals for other people. Um, and he, he really was a very, very good player. And obviously all the, all the stuff... You know how he improved things with the from the race side of things is uh, is well documented. Absolutely, absolutely. Well, you're quite right. I've just googled it while you were talking there. Five. So you must have looked that up before, because if not, that's uh, particularly good knowledge there. Complete guess. <laughs> there we go there we go um, in terms of the game then Simon we, we look good going forward again um, away from home they generally have done alright I think Adam's mentioned before that we're quite set up uh, quite well to play away from home and that's 14 times in the last 16 games in all competitions that Saints have hit the back of the net at least once which when you think about Clauser and all the clean sheets is actually quite a good statistics but I, I find it hard, Simon, just with regards to Pellegrino being an ex-defender. As Glenn mentioned there, all, all the sort of soft goals we seem to be giving away and, and uh, yesterday sort of silly free kicks around. I mean, we must have given Brunt three or four free kicks around the edge of the air. And, you know, yes, we look good going forward. But at the other end, we look a bit shaky. We do. We, we do. But uh, when we were talking about how Constantine at the bottom of the table is arguing, mm. our goal difference is the best in the bottom half. Yeah. And, you know, we don't score many goals. So our defence isn't that terrible, <laughs> considering the amount of upheaval we've had with Virgil um, going to Liverpool for the love of the game. Um, <laughs> it's yeah, I mean you're right, but again, like when Nigel Adkins was manager, we had not a very good goalkeeper. So the former position of the manager doesn't always necessarily change that, that position. Um, his staff, I wonder what they they do because I don't. It wasn't like um, 
in Pochettino's day or when Ronald Koeman was in charge and you yeah. kind of knew what all the members of the staff, their specialities were, just seemed to have a job lot of coaches that have been bust in and uh, you don't really know what they do. Yeah, uh, that's true. You see that guy on the you see that guy on the bench who looks a little bit like Sam McQueen. Who's that? Xavier Tamarit, I believe his name is. I've yeah. Got, yeah. He's done oh, a book okay. or something. Yeah. What he's done on the training field, I don't know. I think, I think he's always got the book under his arm, hasn't he? I think. So uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, I, I agree. I mean I, I think as you say, I mean you think about the Cuman era and you you knew that Dave Watson was whilst being goalkeeping coach was on sort of set pieces and things like that as well. But uh Look, um, yeah, I mean, I guess it's just something looking from the outside in, you sort of wonder what they, they tend to work on when, uh, you know, Hagazi admittedly was obviously had a bit of um, Jack Stevens shirt yesterday, but that happens all the time. So I think it's just uh, something that seems to be uh, needing some work, I think. I think it needed a bit of work in January. I know we kept talking about yes, it did. Get, getting a, a, a pacey attacker, which obviously Saints did need. But centre back, we've got numbers rather than quality. Uh, I think Jack Stevens is a very talented centre back, mm. but he's nowhere near the finished article. Um, Wesley Hoop again is a talented defender, but he's still in his first season in the Premier League and looks like he needs a good dinner. Bednarek, I've not heard particularly good reviews about, and he's what fourth choice. Yeah. Florin Gardos, I don't even know counts as a defender anymore. No. And Mai Yoshida, and I think this is more just born out of the fact that I used to watch him most regularly when he first came to the Premier League. Always gives me the heebie-jeebies whenever he's playing. <laughs> um, so that is a position that isn't great. I, I, I yeah. think our fullbacks are really good. I mean, if Ryan Bertrand gets injured, then we might be in trouble with Matt Target being at Fulham. Mm-hmm. But um, you've, we've got decent fullbacks and the goalkeeping position, which has yeah. puzzled me for a long time. That seems to be settled for once. Yeah, no, McCarthy's done all right there, hasn't he? But I, I saw a tweet from a uh, from a Glenda Lacour. <laughs> I saw a tweet at 14.41 yesterday, Glenda. I've got it here in front of me, and I know you've already mentioned it. It says, this game will be one in midfield. Barry is so slow, we should dominate in there, but we have to stay on the front foot. So there you go. There's a manager talking there, under-14 manager. Um, yeah. Mario Lamina, yeah, Glenn. Um, obviously, there's been a lot of frustration, I guess is the nicest word, in the, Saint, in the Saints fan base the last few weeks with regards to him admittedly coming back from an injury, but, for example, the Brighton game just sitting on the, the bench. But he was back to his best yesterday. He looked a class above. Yeah, I mean... As I say, I didn't go, but you, you've only got to watch the highlights. The fact they picked him out on Match of the Day and just listening to uh, Uncle Dave Merrington on the radio, it, it, you know, it sounded like he had an absolutely magnificent game. Um, it, it's easy to be brilliant in the centre of midfield if you're playing against two people who can't run. Um, but he's, he's, uh, he's got everything. Yeah. You know, he's a great athlete. He's got great feet. He can pass short and long. And, oh, look, he can shoot as well. Yeah. Um, yeah. So... It, one of the things that I've been screaming at is that, I mean, our best midfielders, our best three midfielders are Romeo, Hoiberg and Lamina. Yep. He's tried playing all three of them. When he plays all three of them, he seems to prefer putting Hoiberg as the furthest forward, um, where he looks like a fish up a tree. Um, it just it doesn't suit him there. Lamina could play that number 10 role easily. Because he's got, you know, the feet and the skills and, and obviously he can shoot. I mean, Hoiberg can shoot, but Lamina seems to be the perfect one to play slightly further forward if he wants to play all those three. Yeah. He's such a good footballer. I mean, his two best games this season have been Palace away and West Brom away. And uh, it, it's somewhat annoying that as soon, as soon as he has a game like that, they always highlight it on match of the day. It's like, Liverpool, come and get me now. It's... <laughs> uh, 
not that I'm not that I'm paranoid about that sort of thing. Anything, <laughs> but yeah. yeah, yeah. But but you're right. I mean, it's 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 you know it's just tackling. But the thing that stood out for me every time he gets the ball, he's looking to pass it forward, and that's yeah. been the biggest frustration for me this season. Is particularly. Steve Davis, people like that, the natural instinct oh. is to pass backwards. And if you want to be a, a good side and play positively, you need to be looking to pass pass the ball forward. And he, he was trying to do that every time he got it yesterday. Yeah, that, that's that's the benchmark for how um, adventurous Pellegrino is going to be. If, if Steve Davis plays, it's a negative selection mm. because he's not playing well. No, he's by not. His own, Sadly, he's yeah. not playing well by his, by his own standards. Um, and in the context of the team and in the context of the Premier League as it stands at the moment, if Davies plays as an, as an attacking midfield, well, he's not a goal threat. If he plays as a defensive midfield, then he's he's not sufficiently defensively aware. To me, he shouldn't be sort of near the side at the moment when you've got the three that I've mentioned. You've also got Ward-Prowse, um, who's playing well. So, yeah. Yeah, Lamina, when he's on it, is is a different level altogether. Yeah. And, and Simon, you, you mentioned Jack Stevens a moment ago, and Glenn's just mentioned James Ward-Prowse. Stevens, three goals in three games. James Ward-Prowse, I know they were joking, Paul Merson was joking on Soccer Saturday about that he had one in a million before it, and now he's got four in five. But I think I think Jeff Stellan said it was something like eight and 190 or something like that. But obviously, good to see two youngsters sort of stepping up a bit in terms of goals where maybe some of the seniors are letting them down. Yeah, and it's also at a time when the fans are disillusioned, mm. it's nice to have people that have come through your system yeah. uh, performing and showing a bit of heart. Uh, maybe showing some of the others up. Glenn was obviously discussing um, how good Mario Lamina was yesterday, and he did. He really stood up and was counted. And it, There have been some good individual displays, but Stevens and Ward-Prowse have really kicked on of late. Um, Ward-Prowse, <laughs> I know how much Gareth Southgate likes him, having spoken to Gareth about him several times before and he wouldn't surprise you on this form if he gets looking for marches marches friendlies against Italy and Holland and has a chance of going to the World Cup yeah yeah I gotta say I mean I've seen a few fans saying it the last couple of weeks or so but uh, he's one of those players that I think for me has particularly frustrated because you know he's got that ability in him and I'd almost a bit like Yoshida to a certain extent you kind of wondered if he'd ever make a decent job of the Premier League but Ward-Prowse probably even the last 12-18 months has really come on leaps and bounds and for me I I, I mean he would definitely be in my best 11 of of fit and available players at the moment Yeah no he's one of those footballers that I've kind of said that if it was 15 years ago and 4-4-2 was still the, the formation of choice he'd be a much more effective footballer because well, it's an easy comparison, but a good cross, a good at set pieces, and doesn't have any pace. He's basically David Beckham. <laughs> um, but there's not really that. He's had to kind of find his role. It's taken years for him to really find out who he really is in modern football, it's felt like. Mm. But he's always had the talent. And uh, I remember speaking to him, he scored, I was watching him train for England under 21s, and he scored this ridiculous free kick. I went, blimey, that's a, that's a hell of a goal. And he went, yeah, but I only scored one in four. I went, what do you mean? I said, well. <laughs> He said, well, David Beckham would get one in two rather than scored one in fours. And I said to him something, oh, I'm covering it. This is when I used to cover the under 21s. I'll be uh, covering you possibly for the next few years because I do the 21s. He went, well, maybe not that long. I said, why? He said, well, should be in the senior squad by then. Yeah. I was, wow. So he's got confidence and he works hard. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, and he's got, he's got the right attitude, yeah. hasn't he? He's, yeah, he's he always, He's obviously an intelligent lad. He's, he's, he's got the right attitude and... Uh, yeah, a couple of times he's played on that right-hand side. Um, Claude played him there a few times. He played there in the League Cup final. And he, he had a little run of games where he, he played well, and then he got messed around again. He got put in the number 10 role, which doesn't suit him. He got put back into a defensive midfield role, which doesn't really suit him either. 
um, you know, we, we've got to start messing him around. Mm. You know, hopefully he's going to nail down that slot now. Yeah. And um, and play there regularly because he's certainly got the ability. Totally. I, I was going to ask about Carrillo, but just before we do that, on the the free kick in terms of War Prowse and Buffal and the uh, little contra I mean, we saw it last season with Charlie Austin and Duzan Tadic over the penalty. I guess my view was, Glenn, it's good to see Buffal wanting to take it, wanting to to take on the opportunity and sort of, you know, you, I guess you don't want to see players shirking away from things like that. But Hoyt obviously stepped in, handled it well. War Prowse, I think we know, is the dedicated free kick taker. More importantly, he sticks it in the back of the net, and the Buffel's the first one to to celebrate. So probably a, a bit of a storm in a teacup, and it kind of all worked itself Absolutely. out. Absolutely. Yeah, no issue whatsoever. I mean, it, it, you know, I mean, War Prowse doesn't score as many free kicks as he should, but I mean, it, it took him hundred appearances to score one for Saints, which was also against West Brom, funnily enough. Yeah. In um, the home game, but he, no, he, he he's he's down to take the free kicks. So you know, and one from that position just on the left-hand side it is is absolutely perfect. And it was it was nice to see him go for the far corner for a change because normally all his free kicks from that side go for the near top yeah. corner yeah. and invariably hit the wall or drift just wide. But, uh, yeah, I'd, I'd just like to go back to um, to Jack Stevens for a second. Um, mm. He was mentioned as, you know, homegrown player. I mean, for starters, we signed him from Plymouth. But anyway, let's not split hairs about that. Uh, I was um, more biking the point that he's come through at Southampton. He has, <laughs> yeah, I think he made enough. one or two appearances for Plymouth. I mean, yeah. I'm, I'm also claiming Sam Gallagher if we're going to get into it. So yeah. and, Josh yeah, yeah. Sims, and Josh Sims. Uh, yeah. Adam Lallana, I know he was a Bournemouth <laughs> until the age of 10, but we're having him as well. Yeah, Theo, Theo Walcott was three when we signed him from Swindon, <laughs> I think. But uh, no, going, going back to Stevens, it's great that he's scoring goals, um, but he's having to score a goal a game to make up for the mistakes where he's coughing up goals at the other end at the moment. And yeah. if it was down to me, I'd still have Yoshida ahead of Stevens at the moment because he, he is better in the air. Um, I, I can't believe it's not a relatively easy thing to fix. You know, just stick him on the training ground with Carrillo and just lob crosses in and make him attack them. You know, just make it difficult for him, but make it... He just misses. I mean, the, the second goal, I know technically Rondon was Hoyt's man and yeah. Hoyt wasn't strong enough, but the ball went over the top of Stevens again. And there's, there's two problems. One is getting out-muscled. Harry Kane... Did it to him against Spurs. Higazi was identical to that. And he he does seem to misread the ball when it's coming over. Having said that, the goal he scored was brilliant. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he, he couldn't have headed that better if he tried. Um, so... But it's, yes. it's, it's a game of opinions because I think for me I'd rather have Stevens in than Yoshida. He's definitely got a lot to learn. But just just finally then, Glenn, just on Carrillo, obviously made his debut yesterday. Yeah. Um, I, I mean, obviously he had a few good touches. I know he, he sort of maybe the conditions weren't necessarily ideal for sort of holding the ball up and, and those sort of things. But he did he did look to offer them something a, a bit different. And obviously he needs a bit of time to to get up to speed with the Premier League. Yeah, he does. I mean, the two games he's played so far, he's played against. Um, Dunk and Duffy from Brighton, who are very uncompromising um, and very difficult players for a centre forward, you know, a big centre forward to play against. Against West Brom, that you know, they're a team of centre halves, aren't they? So it's not an easy couple of games to play. It'll be interesting to see he gets on against um, whatever centre backs Liverpool put out next week. But uh, yeah, I heard, I heard that his touch was heavy at times. Um, I, I think with more match fitness, his touch would, you know, his touch will improve. You know, like the fact that he's providing a focal point for the team. Um, he was unlucky not to score as well. He had a great effort that Foster made a good yep. save from. So, uh, yeah, so so far so good. Um, hopefully, he keeps on being selected, and um, 
yeah, continues to improve. Perfect. And, and just finally then, Simon, on this week, um, I guess at the start of the week, I think Adam and I last week's podcast were talking about Saints getting a, a minimum of four points. I guess we probably expected it to come the other way around, but I think as Saints fans, four points out of six, you can't complain at that. Yeah, I mean, well, I will complain about that because we should have beaten Brighton at home, but um, I didn't. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I didn't, as, as we were saying, I didn't see us getting a result almost from it. seemed the perfect storm. I, I know somebody on this podcast doesn't rate Daniel Sturridge, but I thought it was written in the stars for him to have a good performance against us. And uh, Jay Rodriguez, uh, Pardew helped us by not playing him, but with all the Cyril Regis stuff going around and how pumped everyone was and the good result at Liverpool in the Cup, I just thought, right, here we go. This is typical Southampton getting aside at just the wrong time. But yeah, so four points isn't a bad haul. And as, as we've said, it, it's fired us up to 14th, which is ridiculous, really. When yesterday afternoon, I was after Higazi went in, almost threw my laptop out down the stands at Old Trafford. So it's not a bad position to be in. Well, before we talk about transfers in Liverpool, I caught up with Tina Croucher to discuss, amongst other things, the Saints Foundation. Here's what she had to say. Welcome to the podcast, Tina. Lovely to have you with us. Before we talk about your great work at Saints, can you tell us a bit about your background as a fan? You know, your first ever game watching Saints, some of the the favourite players over the years and most memorable games? Yeah, of course I can. Sadly, it gives away my age, but there you go. I was born and brought up on the Isle of Wight and come from a half Dutch, half English family, but huge football fans on both sides. Yep. Sat watching the FA Cup final in 76, like we always did as a family. Didn't support either side. Southampton won. I said to my dad, where is Southampton? He said, just across the water. And that was the beginning of it. (laughs) As simple as that. And then that summer, after winning the FA Cup, Southampton actually came to Newport on the Isle of Wight to open their new ground um, with new floodlights parading the FA Cup. And that was the first time I went to watch them play. Fantastic. And obviously you've been a season ticket holder a long time now. Uh, since 1978, Ben. So what's that, 40 years then? So 40th anniversary. Yeah, it is quite scary when you say it like that. <laughs> and obviously you've seen a few legends during that time then. Yeah, I have. And I was thinking about this when you you know gave me a bit of a pointer of the questions. And I suppose... My first days were players like Nick Holmes, um, etc., David Peach, even, you know, going back into those days. And then went into the lights of Phil Boyer, Steve Moran, Steve Williams, Joe Jordan. And then my ultimate favourite was Kevin Keegan. Yeah. And I'll never forget the day he signed for Southampton Football Club. And uh, yeah, that was huge. So, yes, I've. I've seen many players, obviously, even before the likes of Matt Letizia and Alan Shearer. And then, again, quite a few memorable games. I mean, I, I, I go as far back as sort of 1985, so I can I can remember a few good games sort of since then. But even, obviously, after the 76, they had quite a good run, didn't they, for, for a couple of years and did well in the league and such like. So, yeah, there's obviously been quite a few memorable games. I, I imagine it's probably hard to try and pinpoint one or two. Yeah, it is. It's very difficult, actually. But... Um... Yeah, my first ever game at the Dale was October 78 and we played Nottingham Forest and it was a nil-nil draw and I thought that was extremely exciting and there wasn't a goal. <laughs> so that's how that's how it all began. But yes, after that, I mean, the goals just used to fly in. So it would be rarely that you left there with a nil-nil draw. That was a rarity in those days. It was quite mm-hmm. often there were many goals scored. I remember a really fantastic match against Newcastle, which was a 4-1 scoreline. And it's difficult to pinpoint 
the years. But, yeah, and obviously the years of Kevin Keegan when we ended up second in the league was incredible. Yeah. And, um, yeah, that's why that now it's difficult to compare because today it's so different to what it was in those days because the expectations were a lot less. Mm-hmm. Look, I mean, there was two sort of reasons we were keen to have a chat. You, you obviously do a lot of work for the Saints Foundation. You also do, um, you're now involved in tours of, of St Mary's for, for people to come along and find out a bit more about the stadium. So in terms of the Saints Foundation, Tina, obviously we had Greg uh, earlier in the season. Greg's a, a good mate of mine and, um, you know, he told us a lot about the work that the team were doing. And alongside him, we had Robbie and, and Dirk de Ritter. And I, I was going to ask, you know, your role for the foundation, Tina, what do you sort of get involved in day to day? Yeah, my, my role with the Saints Foundation is I'm a trustee. My elder his son is now 28 and he first started going along to the saints in the community holiday courses way back when he was sort of 14 years old and when he was 16 he started working for the saints in the community as a saturday coach and started his badges sort of slowly back then and that's when i really got involved in the saints in the community And what impressed me the most, I've always, my whole family have always been very much into charity Mm. side of things. But what impressed me the most was the area they covered. They really stretched it as far as they could with the fans that came to support the club. And so obviously went as far as the Isle of Wight. Although I haven't lived on the island for over 30 years, it's still where my family come from, etc. And so that touched me and I wanted to be involved. And Now, on a day-to-day basis, I volunteer at all events that are organised. I go away for the bike weekend every year, support that. And as much as I can do, like we've had the quiz at at the stadium and all sorts of different things, I try and involve myself as much as I can. And as I say, I'm now on the board of trustees. So very lucky to be invited onto that when it became the Saints Foundation. And I know Greg mentioned before how rapidly it had grown over the last sort of few years alongside Saints' um, rise up through the leagues and into the Premier League. So from, from your point of view, Tina, how rewarding is it doing all of the things you do? Oh, it's the most rewarding thing out. I mean, I've I've been involved in things like horse riding and um, sailing and anything I can help out as a helper, I'll do. And it's incredible how far that I even had a visit to Winchester Prison recently with um, Lisa Latona, who heads up that part of the foundation. And it's amazing the job they do and the encouragement and positivity they can bring to people that haven't had as an easy life as we have. No, totally. And and for people that want to find out more, um, we mentioned it before on the episode with Greg, you can find out more about the Saints Foundation at www.saintsfoundation.co.uk. Obviously, get in touch with them. Lisa, Tina, one of the guys will pick it up and be able to give you more information. Um, the tours around St Mary's then, how did that opportunity come about? Well, that's really funny, actually, because the tours used to be run by the Saints Foundation and um, they had an amazing chap that had worked for them for years and also did tours of the Dell long before me. And he was retiring and somebody approached me and said, would it be something I'd be interested in doing? So it started off as a very small role um, doing mainly schools and cubs and scout groups, etc. And um work like that and now it's grown so much it's been taken over by the club itself and the saints foundation don't actually run the tours anymore so that part of it i work for the club now 
and do public and um, corporate tours. Yeah, yeah. And I know, obviously, you mentioned being a passionate Saints fan for many, many years. And in terms of researching then, is it, I was interested to know, is it the sort of thing that as an Uber fan, you can kind of just talk your way around the stadium? Or was there quite a lot of research you actually had to do when you decided you were going to take on the role? I had to do a bit of research, but mainly on people like Ted Bates. I didn't know a lot of his history yeah. and Terry Payne, etc. Obviously, I knew who they were, but I didn't know their history involving how far back it went with the club and etc. and their career with the club, because that was before my time. Anything since then, you can refresh yourself in your own mind. But also I had to know quite a bit about the building of the ground itself, St Mary's, why we ended up building it where we did, how much it cost, how long it took and what was found when they dug up the foundations for the stadium, etc. So I'd say it wasn't a huge amount of research, but I did read up quite a bit beforehand. And any special stories or sort of, I, I don't want you to give too too much away because I'm conscious I want to try and attract people to you to, to actually come on the tour. So I don't want you to give all the uh, the hints and tips away, but any sort of special little stories or any superstitions that the players have that you tell people about? There is one player in this squad at the moment who has certain superstition and he won't have his shirt hung up before a match he has to have it folded on a bench he's the only one with a real big superstition before the game so uh, put it this way if you went into the changing room before the match you'd know that this player was playing or not because his clothes would be folded up and not hung up on the on the hook so uh, I won't tell you who which the player is because that that puts keeps in the mystery but there is one player with that superstition yeah Excellent. So anyone famous outside the club that you can tell us you've given a tour to? Yeah, I've I've done a couple of player tours, actually. I've done a couple of tours for Klaus Lundert Farm that's come back since leaving the club for doing tours with a group of footballers that he now works with in his home country. And that's been really interesting. He's He's loved coming back and has only huge good stories to say about his time at Southampton Football Club. I've done a tour with Maya Yoshida, which was also lovely. And it's really quite strange. Somebody paid money to the foundation to have a tour with a player. And Maya was the uh, player that was chosen. And he hadn't been to half the places we did on the tour. He'd never, for example, been in the away changing room. He hadn't been um, to most of the places up on the top floor where the boxes are. It was He loved the tour himself because it was uh, yeah. new for him. So it is interesting to think you think the players know everything but they don't <laughs> excellent and and if someone wants to undertake a stadium tour then what what's the best way to go about it the best way is um via the ticket office at the stadium so that's either online you can book it or by calling the ticket office itself they run weekend public tours on non-match days so I've done a tour this morning and there were two other tour guides working as well this morning so it was quite busy and they've also just started to do a match day tour so that's pre-match so I did one just before the Tottenham Hotspur game at home and it was the first one we've tried out for many years and it has to be a shorter tour because on a match day you can't go into the away changing room because, of course, the away team arrive the day before, 24 hours before, with all their kit, etc. And then that's locked up and they only have access to that from then onwards. So it becomes a more condensed tour. But it, it was a lovely tour. And it, because we were live on Sky, it was um, very exciting because they got to meet some of the film crew and could ask other questions. So, uh, 
yeah, it was good. Fantastic, fantastic. And look, just before we finish up, um, obviously it's been a decent week on the, the pitch. I, I know as an employee of Southampton Football Club, quite rightly, I'm not going to ask you any questions that will get anyone in trouble. But just in terms of on the pitch, a draw against Brighton, a winner against West Brom, four points out of six, looking at our season, a step in the right direction. Yeah, definitely. And if you look at the last six, we haven't lost, actually. I know two of the games were in the cup, but uh, that has to be a positive thing for the players on the pitch and hopefully take that forward against Liverpool. And like everybody, we would have loved six points away at West Brom and home against Brighton. But four out of six is definitely better than two out of six. Yeah, absolutely. Well, it's been a pleasure talking to you, Tina. If you want to follow Tina, she's on Twitter at St. TMC. As Tina mentioned there, if you want to go onto one of the tours, Get in touch with the ticket office at St Mary's. And finally, again, if you want to do any work with the, the Saints Foundation and help them out, and I know Greg and Tina and the team are always looking for help and volunteers, then you can find more information at www.saintsfoundation.co.uk. The transfer window promised a lot, but ultimately delivered very little for Saints. Just Guido Carrillo for a club record fee of £19.2 million. Possible deals for Theo Walcott and Quincy Promise broke down due to wage demands and a reluctance by Spartak Moscow to sell, respectively. Or at least that's what Saints fans have been fed. So no new winger, no new centre-backs. What we've got is what we've got. Glenn, I called it a questionable transfer window for Saints in the introduction. Is that a fair assessment? Questionable, stroke, poor, yes. We always seem to leave an issue outstanding. If you, if you think about it, last season as a whole, we went into the season one striker short um, and then from January we were, we were a centre-back short. This season we've gone into it a striker short and for the second half of the season we're a centre-back short. Um, we always seem to leave one issue out there. Um, as to why it didn't happen, I mean, I, I just read the papers and read the internet. So I kind of have to take it on face value. I don't necessarily believe some of the excuses. I'm, I'm not one for big conspiracy theories, but... Uh, I just don't think we're prepared to spend the money. Um, the £12 million type players that we signed, like Sadio Mane, Virgil, uh, Victor Wanyama, they seem to be still out there, but they don't cost £12 million anymore. They now cost £20 million and the wages have gone up accordingly. And we we just don't seem willing to you know, put the money on the table, even though yeah. the whole world n- knew that we had money. I, um, I, agree, I agree about the £12 million. We kind of cornered the market, didn't we? Yeah. While, other, while others were going bigger or smaller, we'd go, right, we'll go for this one. We'll get Mane, we'll get Van Dijk, we'll get Wanyama, we'll get these players at that level and try and build them up and double the money. And it, yeah. it, it worked really well. But mm. yeah, th- that player is now 20 million because of the fluctuation in the market. I mean, from anyone I've heard speaking in France, Carrillo is not a 20 million pound player. No. But... In this market, you've got to pay that because everyone knows that the Premier League clubs have money, especially when everyone's patting themselves on the back for getting a world record fee for a defender. Exactly. Um, with Proms, it was a strange one. As we alluded to at the start, I was in Australia for this for the most part of January, so I was watching it from afar. But when I got back and I was putting in calls, uh, the initial information was that Spartak were unwilling to sell because of their inability to get in a... Uh, replacement and considering one of the replacements they were considering was Adel Tarab, you would have had to have checked their sanity um, <laughs> to do it. Sofian Hani, I've seen play for Anderlecht. He's a different type of player to Proms, so uh, it doesn't appear that he was really going to be that replacement, even though they completed the signing of him. Um, Proms wanted to come, 
the information that I had, and I know a number of other journalists that cover Southampton have, is that Spartak Moscow wanted the buyout clause in full, uh, in one hit, which, uh, without getting too bogged down in intricacies, no transfers really paid like that. Mm. So maybe a one million or five million, but thirty million pounds. In theory, Saints should have that money in the bank, but to pay thirty million pounds up front affects the uh, accounts, it affects everything else, and it's such small fry things. But when you weigh it up, it was a difficult one for Saints. So the thing that annoys me more than Saints not paying the money, because I understand the the workings behind it and Spartak's reluctance to sell their best player, is that why do they leave it to the end of the window? Yeah. Well, what, yeah. You've got this black box that you tell everyone about, which sounds fantastic, and it has brought us some fantastic players and Emmanuel Miyuka. <laughs> and you, you, you just wonder, that system is built upon uh, planning. That's why Jack Cork didn't get offered a new deal, because Harrison Reed was coming through. So that was part of the planning. Whether that works in the future, who knows? But it's, it's planned to that much detail that they don't want to block pathways and stuff. But it also has a list of a depth chart in American football talk of targets and people in different positions. And obviously there are different filters for different things. And you can't tell me that Quincy Prones is the only one that ticked all those boxes. Mm. The only thing that makes me think, wonder if they wait to the end of the window is that clubs don't go in for players unless they get the nod and the wink that it could happen. Otherwise, Saints could go for Messi. Because it all tends to sort of happen in reverse these days. I think we all know that with the Van Dyke saga, don't we, Simon? In that everything kind of gets agreed with the player and the agent and sorting out the fee with the club is kind of, and the payment terms is kind of normally the last bit these days. Yeah, you get yeah. a stick of Blackpool Rock as well with Virgil. You, um, <laughs> the only thing that makes me th- wonder about that situation, as I said, I, I wasn't there for the, the mid part of January or the start, but if the Quincy Primes wasn't in it, was initially reluctant to move and then they said, right, actually, no, he was interested. Then they go in, and then negotiations start a week to go towards the end of the window, which doesn't leave Spartak enough time yeah. to, to well, do their business. He wasn't our first choice, though, was he? I mean, our first choice was Theo Walcott. Agreed. And we spent yeah. we spent two weeks. It, it sounds like we were too nice about it again, like we have been on a few times. Toby Alderweireld springs to mind. You know, we, we took it for granted that he wanted to join us. Um, and it just seemed to me that we... Um, we fannied around a bit with Walcott. Everton eventually came in and blew us out of the water. Okay, that happens. We then turned our attention to uh, to Quincy Prom- Promise, however you pronounce it, and it, you know, didn't leave enough time to, to do it. Apparently, Quincy's a left a left footed left winger. He, he plays on the left hand side, um, and that's the position where um, Pellegrino has already said that that's Buffal's best position. That's Redmond's best position. I'd argue about that, but he said it. Um, it's also where Tadic plays as well, you know, on occasion. So I'm wondering if we actually needed a left. I mean, even if he's better than those three, I, I think there are other areas centre back um, that that was that was more urgent. But there you go. Yeah, Lucy made a, a good point. She was talking about some stats on last week's uh, pod, Glenn, after uh, you sort of dropped off, but um, that he could play up front as well. And I guess you know he's yeah, that yeah. sort of Mane player where he can play anywhere. Those sort of those top four positions, really, I think. So. Well, it's like Walcott as well, isn't it? Yeah. So. yeah. I, the, the interesting thing is that Southampton are going to still try and bring him in the summer. So even if he is second choice, they do clearly like him. Yeah. Um, yeah. And he is a very talented player from what I've seen. It's just, as I made the point when I got that information, that Southampton are going to have to be a Premier League side <laughs> to yeah. uh, attract him. So they need to get their finger out. Uh, they did on Saturday, thank thank goodness. But 
we'll have to wait and see. Also, going back to your point about doing things early, I mean, you know, we probably decided to sell Van Dyke on about the 1st of December or, you know, it would have been about a month before we actually did. And we got rid of him and it was all in the media, obviously, and that we got the money in on about it's about the 28th of December, wasn't it? Yeah. So it may seem very simplistic, but why didn't we have a replacement ready to go? We seem great at selling players swiftly, but not necessarily yeah. buying them swiftly. Well, Pelle- Pellegrino, ever since, I mean, I asked him after we won at Crystal Palace many moons ago about Van Dyke, could he go in January? And he didn't say, no, he's not going then. He kind of went, well, he, he might do. And I just thought, well, hold on, if this is already in mind now, then there really is no excuse with the black box and a system that, yeah, has the odd flaw, but has done Saints really well in the circumstances in recent years. Yeah. Um, why don't you have that player ready? And, and in terms of you as a journalist, Simon, I mean, obviously there was a lot of names banded around, you know, in the Telegraph, for example, it was early doors. I think it was the same report when we said about Van Dyke going, there was names Sturridge, Alfie Mawson, all those sort of things leaked in inverted commas out through the, the press. I mean, you, you as a journalist must get hundreds of names linked to hundreds of clubs. How, how hard is it to sort of, when you come to printing a story and, and being confident, because I, I guess the situation around deadline day particularly, and I know you were actively involved in it, must change so so quickly that you put a story out and it's almost the, the goalposts have moved by the time you've done it. Yeah, it's a strange one. I mean, for those that don't know, I work for a news agency. So it's a bit different to a newspaper where we can help, where they kind of, unwritten rule, help agents. Not Adam Leach, not saying him, but uh, at certain newspapers, they scratch your back, you scratch them. You get their client in the media and then they give you a nod when the story's coming out and you get that story first. It kind of works like that. It doesn't really work like that where we are because we have to know it's legit. There are so many names linked in the media. I don't, I'm not sure where those names came from. I can't even say I saw them because I think I was about to board a flight at that point. But they're the kind of names that make the fans, they give some the fans some hope. So you'd think that would come from the Southampton end. Mm-hmm. It just really. made me sceptical, I have to say. Yeah, probably. yeah. <laughs> Having just heard those name then, and that Swansea wanted twenty five odd million for Mawson, I, we were never going to pay that, were we? There was Ryan Sessegnon at Fulham, because I guess the other thing is also the the flip side of that is if it does come from Saints, it then builds up fans' hopes a bit like promise, uh, and then and then when it falls flat on its face, of course, fans automatically get frustrated. Yeah, you might not be aware because I, obviously I have to take a broader look at stuff that. Every year, at a certain time of the year, it might even be coming up to that point. I don't know when season ticket renewals are. <laughs> Arsenal seem to get linked to a lot of big name players that kind of builds hope at just the right time. So yeah. whether you can see any correlation with that, I, I don't know. Just to finish on transfers, then, Glenn, Pellegrino's getting the brunt of frustration of the fans at the moment. But yeah. in terms of the board, Les Reed, Ross Wilson getting the deals over the line, what, for whatever reason, I mean, particularly Mr. Wilson. I mean, do you, do you think he should be getting a bit more? finger wagging maybe in his direction or do you think it's unfair without knowing all the circumstances yeah one thing i will say about pellegrino is that he always fronts up he's the public face of anything other than the 11 players on the pitch you know he he does the interviews he does the press conferences he gets asked all the questions and it's his face that everyone sees and it's easy to hate things you can see it's not so easy to throw bricks at people that you can't see. Agree. Um, I mean, to me, the, the first rule of leadership is to be visible when things are not going terribly well. And Pellegrino does that. Les Reed and in particular, Ross Wilson, do not. They're not around. I mean, Adam Leach has spoken before about not having access to Les Reed to ask him questions. Um, what I think will happen is that hopefully we'll win a few games, be safe from relegation, and then Les will come out and he will probably make a a little video about 
why the transfer window was like it was. Mm. Um, but he won't do it. He certainly wouldn't have done it after the Brighton game. And he, he will be he will be looking to pick his moments. Um, I, I mean, t- what, what actually is Ross Wilson's job? Is he is he identifying players or is he just part of the transfer committee? I don't really know how it works these days. What I would say, not in defence of them, because I don't necessarily think they should be defended. But again, looking wider, there's not many people, sometimes Ralph Kruger talks in riddles, but I can't say that there's many clubs where the chairman speaks as much as he does to the media. Yeah. So I, I certainly don't go and have a chat with uh, Ed Woodward every three months. And there's not many other clubs where the director of football will come out and do an interview at all. Maybe that's what the problem with Les is. Les did do interviews when things were going well. Yep. So that level of expectancy rises that when things are going bad, he again should be leading from the front. And yeah, you're probably right. Les will probably speak in a month or two when things are at the end of the season and things are looking up. And Ross, no, I can't, I'm not aware of any chief scouts or whatever his official title is doing interviews or fronting up because it's not. No, I, not, I, I don't, I don't really expect Ross Wilson to do, to do interviews, but Les is the main director of all football matters. Yep. And yeah. the transfer window, 90% of the fan base are looking at the transfer window and wondering what the hell went on there. And to me, if 90% of your customers, as they love to call them, have an issue with something, you should be addressing it, really. I know he's damned if he does and damned if he doesn't, because if he, if he says anything, he's going to get slaughtered. But to me, anyway, he should be making that step and at, at least explaining. Because if he comes in and says, well, Spartak stuck 15 million quid on the price in the last five minutes, what could we do? Then at least you've got some sort of explanation. The, the trouble is, Glenn, I mean, I, I agree I agree with you, and I think as a fan, you, you want them to speak, but I do get the feeling, you know, you think of Ralph's interview, he got absolutely battered for whatever reason for saying the small club line, and if, if Les Reed did come out and say, oh, they added 15 million at the end, you know, part of me thinks, well, Saints fans would just go, you're lying, we don't believe you anyway. So yeah, it's kind of, as you say, it's kind of a rock and a hard place. I just hope yeah. that whether Les is at the club for four months and the Chinese decide they want to go in a different direction or if he's there for another ten years, he has he deserves a lot of credit. Yeah, I agree. Oh, some oh, horrible, yeah, horrible, horrible bumps in the road or uncomfortable bumps in the road. But I'd say he's probably been in, as integral to getting Saints to where they are or were than anyone else. I know Nicola would like to take claim for everything. Um, but I'm very good at spending other people's money as well. So I think sometimes it gets lost. As I said, I, Les probably shouldn't have been so vocal several years ago when things were going right, because then that does mean that when things are going bad, which inevitably at some stage or something will, people expect him to be publicly open again as well. So yeah, maybe he's learned point. from that. Maybe he's learned from that. And But he's done a fantastic job. Everyone I speak to within football, well, everyone, everyone that isn't at Southampton fan goes, oh, haha, he's the guy from Charlton, isn't he? But everyone inside football goes, he's a great bloke. He's done a hell of a good job. And I, you, you can't disagree with that. He didn't have a great window. However, that transfer scenario came about. We missed the target that we were looking for. But we did get a striker who may turn out to be an Argentinian Lee Barnard, but could turn out to be very good. We, we don't know. So I am like everyone else. I guess I was I've been so like glum as a Southampton fan recently. It looks like you're just plummeting and there was no way out. But at the same time, when you look at it in a wider perspective, things are pretty good. There has been a sense of drift behind the scenes, but things have been run pretty well over the last few years. So there's naturally going to be a bump in the road. Yeah, can I t- turn this on his head and I'd just like to ask Simon a question. Why don't you think he's been sacked yet? Who, Pellegrino? Yeah, absolutely, because 
to, I, me, yeah, I, should, to me, they should have sacked him three months ago. Um, I'm a bit mystified as to why they haven't. Well, on the media kind of thing, I don't spend all my time down in Southampton, but looking at the likes of Adam Leach, Adam Blackmore, uh, the people that are there at the coalface week in, week out, they get a good sense around the club, better than anyone really, uh, better than any other outsider, of the 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 temperature, the 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 feeling behind the scenes, and it with Claude, everyone got that feeling that it wasn't working, but with Mauricio, yeah. they've been considering the results. It's been softer with him than I was expecting, which says something about him, I think, about Pellegrino, that there is something about him. The players, as far as I'm aware, haven't turned on him. His decisions are puzzling. I was at, I was in the away end at Tottenham on Boxing Day for my sins. And, yeah, I was like, this guy's got to go. I don't know how he's going to get through this. I mean, the fans were chanting that they're getting sacked in the morning at their own manager, and I thought, I've never seen this before anywhere. What is going on? <laughs> um and then obviously there was another difficult result a few days later. Forgive me, I can't remember it was against a few days after. But then he rode out that storm and I thought, OK, they're not getting rid of him. And then Ralph obviously did the interviews where he said that and they kind of, they backed him to a point that I didn't expect them to back him to. And I think that's probably because they can see something that we can't. And I mean, we're trying to see it and there's nothing there at the moment. But he did well at Alaves, didn't he? And he's clearly got something about him to get to where he is in football. And there is a dearth of options to replace him. Marco Silva, I know people go, oh, Marco Silva. But this is a, <laughs> we're a club that spends our entire time getting annoyed with people for wanting to jump straight away to bigger and better things. And Marco Silva has been the most explicit out of any manager I can ever remember um, about wanting to leave when he yeah, when Everton came sniffing after just nine games. So, yeah, Marco Silva probably would do a better job right now than Pellegrino, but Marco Silva will jump ship as soon as he gets a sniff of anything else. You're right, Simon, because I think Saints fans are quick to moan when people aren't loyal to us, and yet here we've got a manager that's trying to build something, and w- whether we like him or loathe him, and I've been quite um, clear that you know he's failed to convince me so far, but you're right. I mean, if we want someone to be our manager two, three, four years, then uh, there are going to be ups and downs, and you kind of, however hard it may be, and I, I, I certainly wouldn't have been disappointed if he had been sacked, but likewise, he's still here. You know, even yesterday, I tweeted saying I'd much rather they got three points on the pitch than they lost because he got sacked. So it's, it's kind of a two-way street, isn't it? Yeah, I think. I, I think- do you think we've been spoiled a bit? I guess it depends how you look at it. I mean, you, you know, we've we spent a lot of money. We pay a lot of money as fans to go and watch them. And I think we've obviously been on some journey. And as you said, there's naturally going to be lows. But have we been sport? Maybe. Maybe, yeah. When people said to me, you sacked Claude Puel. Why have you done that? I went, well, and I, I tried to think why, apart from the obvious that we just it just didn't work. But for me, it seems to be, as a Southampton fan right now, the trade-off is you will lose your best players to a bigger club because there's natu- that's just the way the world is. But in return, the trade-off, we expect to be entertained and to have fun. And there hasn't been any for the last year and a half, really. Yeah, no, sorry, of course, the cup final. But in the league, it's been a bit of a, it's been a, bit of a struggle. So I speak to Southampton supporting mates now, like, I just can't really be bothered to go to the game because it's not that entertainment anymore. And that's what I feel like we're getting it down to now. Liverpool next up at St Mary's. To finish this week's podcast, we're going to have a quick look at that game. Glenn, fearing the worst a little bit, I guess, based on their uh, pace up front. But bearing in mind the results that we've now had this week, is it a bit of a free hit for Saints? Um, 
I think games against the, the you know the Champions League clubs are, are always a bit of a free hit, especially at home. I think you've you've got to have a bit of a go. You can't play the the nine zero one formation, and um, you know you you have a, a a duty, and it will do you better to at least have a go at these teams. I mean, everyone knows Liverpool's strength is up front. Everyone knows their weaknesses are at the back, and you know at the defensive side of midfield and the goalkeeper. So let's attack their weaknesses and see what happens. We know that Mane and Salah are quick. You know, we can deal with that. We've got pace in the fullback areas. And they're not going to lob the ball into the box, which is good for us. You know, why not be positive and, and have a go? Well, everything will be revealed in the team selection. Yeah. I mean, in my opinion, he should pick exactly the same team as he picked against West Brom. I agree. I agree. Why yeah, change absolutely. it? Why yep. change it? And whoever's at the back for them, um, you know, Clavin is dodgy. Lovren is dodgy. Van Dijk has been dropped. I don't know if he's been... He's uh, overweight, I think. Was, overweight, that's why, yeah. He's overweight, carrying his money around. Um, <laughs> you know, I just, and I, personally, I don't like to be a nasty person, but I hope Van Dijk gets dog's abuse from the moment he steps into the ground um, until the end. Yeah, and in, and in terms of the VVD situation, Simon, I, I know you obviously outside looking in, but what did you kind of make it all? And I, I guess, you know, did you think Saints were left with no choice in the end? I think it was one of those ones where there was no right or wrong answer in terms of January, I think a club were right to make a stand in the summer. I think they may have uh, underestimated the fallout to an extent. But he's obviously a talented guy. I get fed up with footballers signing on for an extended stay and a massive paycheck and then a year later saying, I want out. Well, tough luck, mate. You've just signed a deal to become the, most, the best paid player in the club a year after signing. And a year later, you want to leave. Well, sorry, mate, you've got five years left. So we've got the upper hand. It's a horrible situation, but he will get the reception, I believe, he probably deserves. And it's just been quite an unsavoury thing. Um, it's, I think in years to come, 10 years' time, we'll be talking about Toby Alderweireld as like, just what a class player he was. But I, mm. I don't think we're ever going to get rid of that sour taste, the bitter taste in our mouth with Van Dyke because just... The way he treated the fans like mugs. Yeah, yeah. no, I totally yeah. agree. And in, and totally in terms, agree with that. Yeah, and in terms of Liverpool, Simon, I know you obviously cover Manchester United, so you don't necessarily get to see Liverpool week in, week out. But they've obviously got talented players, many with them, with Southampton on their CV at some point. But seem to have been a little bit inconsistent recently. So famous last words: Are we kind of getting them at a good time? No. <laughs> um, <laughs> Liverpool's front line just scares the bejesus out of me. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's not as good as it was before they had, you know, before they sold Coutinho. That that no, seems to have made a huge difference. Um, but but because he was are, the he was the intelligence behind it. Yeah, but I know you said about the pace at fullbacks, but we don't really have that through the middle. And if no. you've got two or three people coming at you, then that then inevitably one's going to wriggle free at some point. So I'm I'm expecting the worst. I mean, it's kind of ingrained in me this season. Um, <laughs> I'm but, with you on that. Yeah. I, I mean, hopefully I'm proved wrong, but. And Liverpool are a bit of a Jekyll and Hyde side. We've seen that. Um, and Swansea have shown that you, the way to frustrate them and choke them. And we've, last season, we, what we played them four times, they didn't score. And the side isn't that much different now to what it was then. So, apart from that, Salah lad, who's <laughs> quite good. Um, I'm expecting a defeat. But the fact that we beat West Brom has given me more hope that we can kick on for the remainder of the campaign. Smashing. All right. Well, let's uh, finish the podcast with some predictions, although I think I'll probably fear the answers here. But, Glenn, let's start with you. Liverpool at St Mary's next week. What do you reckon? 2-0. A goal bonanza. Excellent. Simon? Uh, 2-1 to Liverpool. Cool. And I, I've gone for 2-0 Liverpool. You're the, you're the Mark Lawrenson 
of predicting, aren't you? I got told that last you week know. by Lucy, but yeah. as Adam said, I'm generally quite right. So uh, <laughs> there we go. I'm, I'm the opposite of Mark Lawrence, though, because I always predict us to lose, whereas he always predicts Liverpool never to lose. Yeah, so, yeah. yeah, okay. So, yeah, there we go. Good stuff. Thank you as ever for listening to the Total Saints podcast. Despite all the current doom and gloom on the pitch, we do enjoy putting it together and getting a chance to set a few things off our chest. My thanks to Glenn, Simon and also Tina for joining us this time around. Don't forget that you can find us on Facebook and Twitter. You can also contact Adam and myself at totalsaintspodcast at yahoo.com. All in all, it's been a decent week on the pitch for Saints. Let's hope it continues. Until next time, keep marching in. The TalkSport Fan Network is proudly teaming up with three for Mental Health Awareness Week this year. Beyond the pitch, beyond the results, we're here to connect fans, getting them to embrace the highs and lows of supporting your club because we're not just fans, we're a team. With two in three football fans having struggled with their mental health, we understand that life off the pitch can present its own challenges. That's why we're committed to ensuring you have the tools to stay connected with your friends and fellow supporters. Take a moment to connect with your mates. A simple text or an open conversation can make a world of difference. And if they don't respond right away, don't hesitate to follow up. Let's all take a moment to talk more than football. Away days are great, but there's nothing quite like playing at home. The same goes for McDonald's. Maximise your home ground advantage with McDelivery. Order now on the McDonald's app. At participating restaurants, 18 plus serving times, delivery fee and terms apply. See mcdonalds.com. This podcast is proud to be part of the TalkSport Fan Network. TalkSport. Powered by fans.